Welcome to another episode of Up To. Eight years ago, Up To started as a live event series showcasing leaders who are as humble as they are successful. The humility piece is extremely important as we identify leaders who can inspire others. We try to focus our interviews on the non-business aspects of their lives, and in doing so, have found that there is a real thirst to explore their hearts and minds in atypical ways. Our host, as always, is Adam Kaufman, and our guest today is Dr. Jean-Claude Keen. Thanks for joining us. We'll be right back. One of the aspects of podcasting I enjoy the most is the ability to delve into long-form discussions without any interruption other than a periodic commentary about one of our partners. I'm grateful that Calfi, Ohio-based law firm, has agreed to partner with us. They have offices throughout Ohio and also in Washington, D.C., in New York, and Indianapolis, too. They are a full-service firm, every type of legal need. One example I'll share right now, because so many of our listeners are entrepreneurs, is not too long ago, a friend of mine sold his company to a public corporation. And with that came some restrictions and ramifications on his future employment. And to navigate through that properly, he asked my advice. And without hesitation, I recommended Calfee because I knew they'd have the right type of specialist to help him with his particular needs. And my friend continues to rave about that experience. And I'm very grateful that Calfee has agreed to partner with Uptu. So whether it's selling your own business or the more routine needs of creating your first will or anything in between, uh, this firm can really do it all in terms of legal needs. Once again, the firm is Calfee. You can find them at calfee.com or on the Up To Foundation website. Welcome back. And here's our host, Adam Kaufman. Our guest today is Dr. Jean-Claude Keen. Jean-Claude, which he insists on being called, earned his PhD in chemistry and biotechnology from the University of Louvain in Belgium. He was the president of Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company, one of the most recognized brands in the world for Europe, South America, and the Middle East. Prior to serving as president, Jean-Claude was the chief technical officer and also headed Goodyear's innovation unit. Having spent nearly 30 years playing significant roles with this highly respected international corporation, our guest today has lived and worked in nearly every corner of the globe. A true global citizen, Jean-Claude speaks six languages, wow and he possesses a very informed worldview, which we plan to explore today. He is a husband and a father, and now a too-young-to-be-retired advisor and consultant. Bonjour, Jean-Claude. Bonjour, Adam. Ça va? <laughs> Très bien, et toi? Très bien. What have you been up to? Well, I think right now uh, I'm doing, as you said, just in the very generous introduction, uh, I'm doing a mentoring and uh, I'm taking care of my family. I mean, now my family, my, my children. Yeah, they didn't see uh, you for 30 years. Right, <laughs> not much or not enough for sure. <laughs> and then also reading, there are so many things uh, you can read, especially now, I mean, we are going through a crisis and it's good to be informed. And then, as I said, mentoring, mentoring, I do it with um, relatively young executives who I'm just mentoring now, mm-hmm. a CTO who was just appointed. Uh, and um, I think for him it's a, it's a new challenge, and I think he's uh, appreciative of, of the advice that I can offer him based on my personal experience. What does mentoring do for you? Well, I think what is important is that you share your knowledge. I mean, I have 
by me. You have a ton of knowledge. I have knowledge and I have uh, experience and I made mistakes, many mistakes. So why why should I not share that uh, with other people? Absolutely. Uh, just like I, I was very fortunate that I had mentors in my life who helped me a lot, uh, through, especially through the most difficult periods. So I think mm-hmm. that is human nature. It is sharing and transmitting uh, information and right. experience. Well, how have you been spending your days during this unusual season of life that we all find ourselves in? Like, what is a typical day look like for you during these COVID protocols? Well, uh, I think for me, probably since I'm retired now, it's not uh, such a big change as it is for people who had, I mean, to go to the office every day and suddenly work from home. I mean, that's a very big change. So what I usually do, I do my email, the work that I have to do. I'm a morning person. I'm doing that and then I'm doing uh, whatever other stuff about the house, etc. You're pretty active though, I know. I mean, you're young to be retired and I know you lead an active outdoor life too. So have you been doing some more physical activity? Yes, I'm usually walking every day. I'm really making a point to walk every day at least a few miles, whatever the, the, the weather. Mm-hmm. And also I did some something I have never really done, at least not in the last 40 years of my life. It's uh, uh, backpacking. I did uh, 50 miles of the Bugeye Trail, which is a trail that a loop around Ohio, which I had never done. And uh, so uh, you have to carry a pretty big backpack. 50 miles by yourself? 50 miles by myself. So how many nights were you like sleeping solo along the trail? <laughs> four nights and, and I walked four days. So it's about 12 miles a day, which is not that much. But I noticed the difference when you have a backpack or say 35 pounds or so, that makes a huge difference. Yes, you're carrying walking. water and some food. Water, a tent, uh, I mean, uh, a sleeping bag and uh, food and, and yeah, and water, as you say. I mean, it, it adds up. It adds up. And did you listen to music or uh, podcasts, the Up To podcast while you're walking? Or <laughs> how did you pass the time during your, your walking since you were doing it solo? That's really interesting. No, I usually, or I almost never listen to uh, something electronic or record it uh, while I'm walking. I think nature is so full of noises. Uh, I mean, the birds that are chirping and, and the leaves that are rustling and and uh, whatever other noise you have, and also the sand, I mean, of nature, etc. Mm-hmm. So there is a lot there already to stimulate my, my senses. I don't uh, need any anything, I would call it artificial. So I'm enjoying the nature that I am in. Enjoy the present. You, mm-hmm. you, you're wise to do that. I need to do more of that. Can I jump in here for a second? Yeah, Dave. Jean-Claude, I am so struck by the fact that you didn't listen to anything as you hiked for that 50 is miles. I often listen to music or podcasts almost as a distraction, you know, to fill up the time and space. Can you talk about that? Do you feel like you're at peace? Are you working things out as you're walking along? What are you doing? Well, I, I'm at peace usually. I think that is what nature can bring you if you hear, hear the birds chirping and, I mean, the, the, the quiet noises. I mean, that is very pacifying. Um, so that is why I do it. And I think it's also to be in communion with what is surrounding you. I think that's important. Um, two years ago, my two sisters came to the U.S. and with their husbands and my younger sister had her younger children. And we went to different places. I showed them a little around. And, and we finished our trip in Shenandoah. And, and there we did the Appalachian Trail, which Gorgeous. is very famous. We just did a few miles there. Uh, and, and I saw someone, he, 
He was walking very fast. He looked grim. He didn't have any eye contact with <laughs> us uh, crossing him. And I was saying, what a waste. I mean, especially Shenandoah, it's one of the most beautiful this places yeah. uh, you can imagine. So look around you and appreciate nature, appreciate the wonderful things we have there for free, okay? He was probably wanting to do, uh, I don't know how many miles or so. Right. And, and so I, I think he missed out mm. on the most important part of doing such a hike. Uh, Not even being able to allow himself to be in the moment to enjoy it. To enjoy it. And I'm also sure he must not have been. So how much is he missing? I um, remember when I introduced you to Philippe Bourguignon, another guest from our show. We met him over in Chamonix, France at the conference yes. we attended together and he always talks about meandering and letting your mind walk and meander yes. just as you're walking and meandering. And it sounds like you did quite a bit of that, 50 miles. Did you come up with any new thoughts or observations or reflections that have stuck with you? Well, I think you come in contact with people you would not come into contact. Mm -hmm. uh, the first night I slept, it was a small a place where you were allowed to camp uh, along the Bagai Trail, but n no facilities. It was just, uh, I mean, the grass and, and a fireplace and a bench, which is already a lot. And as I was, uh, I had just built my tent and uh, uh, getting ready to do my dinner, someone else came, uh, a hiker actually. It's for bikers and hikers. And um, so we were talking a little bit. Uh, he may have had, I don't know, 45, 50 years uh, but then he told me that he uh, he was a drifter. He actually gave me a lot of tips uh, for what I could do, should do, or should not do. Isn't that interesting? I, the drifter I, was mentoring you. Yes, he was mentoring me, yes. We can learn from everyone. That's one of the things I love about this show, excuse me, is that I'm learning from people. My guests always are thanking me for being on the show, but I learn from you. I learn from the guests. I'm a sponge around people like you, so thanks for being here. Well, thank you for inviting me. Uh, more about your COVID activities. We happened to be at a conference in San Antonio together, which turned out being the last time we all traveled early March, right. which I know I didn't expect it to be my last trip, but it was. You normally, I bet, travel to Europe in the summertime? Yes, I travel to Europe, and I had also foreseen this year uh, a trip with my siblings, actually, to India. Uh, and uh, I was wondering, in that was foreseen in uh, the beginning of April, the first two weeks, and I was wondering in March, should I go, should I not mm. go? And, so and then the Indian government uh, made a decision for me. Oh, uh, you couldn't even have gone. You tourists have were not allowed anymore, um, so it was just closed. Do you so think you would have gone if you were permitted to go? That's an interesting question because I know India had some early success but later struggles with the pandemic. Well, I think you should really not go uh, too far uh, during this time, especially if you are not that familiar. I have been to India once, but still, if you are not that familiar with the medical system and and all that, I mean, why why looking for a problem? Oh, gosh, yeah, uh, being so, in a hospital in right. a rural part of India, my goodness. Right, right. Actually, among your six languages, do you speak any of the languages of India? No, I don't. Uh, okay. They are all from the Western European branch and they are all contemporaneous languages. So modern languages, I don't speak ancient Greece or Greek or Latin, etc. You're such so a the, slacker. <laughs> so those languages, I mean, Spanish, English, German, etc., Portuguese, they really resemble 
each other. I, I looked for sometimes on YouTube, there is uh, someone who is speaking about languages. Uh, and, and when you look at really different languages like Arabic or uh, Basque, I mean, which is also a European language, mm-hmm. but it has nothing to do. It's really completely different. Still very impressive for those of us who grew up in America, where most of us only speak one language. It, it really is impressive. But let's let's go back in time a little bit before we get into your impressive career. You were born in Luxembourg, correct? Yes, correct. And what type of family were you born into? Was it a definite that you'd go into sciences or was it in question early on? Talk about the early part of your life. Yeah. So yes, I was born in Luxembourg, which is a very small country. It's not a city in Mm -hmm. in Germany, as you know. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I was also born uh, and lived, raised just next to the French border, less than a mile. Uh, Oh, less than a mile. I didn't realize that. uh, From the very beginning, I mean, crossing the border was something I, I did sometimes several times a day. It there's no 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 big deal. Uh, I grew up on a farm. My uh, parents had a farm, so that taught me a lot. In particular, I mean, uh, to keep my feet on the ground. You you learned there that you. That's have probably to. why you still enjoy getting up early. Probably, even though I think it's just uh, the the rhythm of every person, whether you are a morning person or an evening person or a night. That's true. I'm also the oldest of uh, five siblings. I mean, which has taught me some lessons of leadership because on a farm, everyone has to to work and help. And being the oldest, I mean, now whether that was always a good experience for my siblings, I'm not sure. I'm actually (laughs) sure it was not always very pleasant. But on the other hand, it allowed me to learn some principles of, of leadership. This is great. I planned on asking about leadership. What aspects of leadership do you think you learned early on? Like delegation, because you had these other siblings working on the farm with you or was it more about consensus building or being a good listener? What aspects of leadership do you think you learned early on? Well, actually, I was not such an early on, uh, such a person who was delegating or looking for consensus. I was more a command and control. A monarch. (laughs) Or dictator, rather. Wow. You had also a discussion with uh, uh, General uh, Lenderman about uh, leadership. And I think you learn to be a leader, to be especially a better leader. I think you don't just to be a leader, you want to be a good or the best possible leader. And that is like any job. I mean, you need to to learn it. Even in big companies, you are really trained to become a a better leader. They give you classes on knowledge, et cetera, about how to really be the... Did Goodyear do that for you? Like as you were rising the management ranks, I know... Jim Collins talks about a level five leader being someone who has to be extremely ambitious, but also particularly humble, a rare combination with ambition. But did, did Goodyear spend time like teaching you how to be a certain type of leader as you were ascending up to president of you know, much of the world? Yes. Uh, I mean, you there, there are classes that I, I was sent to to become a, a leader. But I think you still learn a lot uh, by yourself Real just world. practicing uh, it and, and also the feedback you get from other people, your subordinates, right. uh, if they feel comfortable, if you're a dictator. I, I was joking. I, I was never really a dictator. I was maybe just a bit too commanding mm. and controlling with my siblings. But uh, getting uh, feedback is 
is very important. And I think that is what you have to be as a leader, open to feedback. Yeah, People it takes a lot of not, humility. Uh, have not to, if they are afraid to give you feedback, uh, that is very bad because I think the other extreme is they just flatter you. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's happening to leaders. Yeah, I mean, I, they, I, they just get flattering messages and they are completely detached from reality. That's true. I've actually had friends who've worked for two different U.S. presidents and they talk about the echo chamber. Everyone wants to just say, oh, that's a great speech, or you did a great job, or I agree with your policy position because they want to stay in good graces with the top leader. Uh, It's the rare environment that allows for true feedback. Yeah. When you have a job where you have no peers, the number one, the CEO, Mm -hmm. I was the president of a business unit or the CTO, so I did have peers. We all reported to the chairman, CEO. So you get open feedback from your peers. (laughs) Right. That's healthy, healthy, as you say, though. Right. That is good. But if if, if you are president or chairman, CEO, etc., you don't have Mm. peers like that anymore. Just the voters once every two or four years. Right, right, right. Well, do you think leadership, though, can really be improved upon? I often have entrepreneurs in the podcast studio like this, and I ask if entrepreneurship can really be taught. Every school teaches it. But I feel like this is just my opinion that entrepreneurship is something that either someone has inside her or him or doesn't. That that risk tolerance and that ability to pivot. And I have similar views, not as strong about leadership. I feel like folks are either born a leader naturally or not. What what do you think? Because you, you did have to learn how to manage more and more, eventually thousands of employees. Is it is it a teachable? set of skills? I think it is teachable. Now, there are some people who have absolutely no desire to become a leader. Right. And and then I think it's it's a mistake to promote them to a leadership position and, and they, they will never be a good leader. So I think if you have a natural talent uh, for leadership, that doesn't mean that you don't have to learn. It's just like if you have a talent to become a musician, well, it only right, starts right. after that. I mean, you need to learn your to play your instrument and then you need to practice, 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 practice. And I think leadership is a little bit the same. I think you have a, a natural ability to be a leader, but then you have to practice, practice, practice uh, until you become a a good leader or better leader. So was that a big decision for you to move from the science side of your work to the management leadership side? Or were you a natural born leader where that was an obvious path that you would be going down? Yeah, for me, it was a relatively obvious path. I made, as you mentioned in the introduction, a PhD study, which is really PhD thesis, which is really research and then my first years at at Goodyear were also I mean not research but development but still as a single contributor etc. What does that mean single contributor? Well you don't have anyone reporting to you. Right Uh, and so that was when you were in the chemistry or biotechnology? That was in in the the chemical part so what I was doing I mean developing new rubber compounds for tires at at Goodyear that was my job the first years. Because I looked up this morning the person who had the executive who has your role now he doesn't have a PhD in any science he has a bachelor's degree in history. So it's just interesting that you had this heavy science training, yet you attained this high position. I I just find it very impressive. Folks are often left-brained or right-brained. Not you. I guess you're (laughs) all-brained. 
that I don't know. But I think in a company, it's good to have people with different backgrounds. Uh, I think if you have uh, too many leaders at the top of the company who have the same background, you don't get that wealth of, of experience because the company, finally, it's it's everything together. It's sales, it's manufacturing, it's uh, research and development, it's mm-hmm. finance, it's human resources, etc. Goodyear used to have a rule that uh, the chairman and CEO was alternating. At that time, uh, I mean, the two important functions were sales and manufacturing. Sure. So they were alternating between the salesperson and the manufacturing person, which I think is a very good idea. How long a term, I know they weren't terms, but how long before they would switch to the other type of leader? Two years or 10 years? Or, or was it not systematic like that? It wasn't systematic. Mm. I think it was usually, I think, that five or 10 years, I believe. How did, of, how did you end up at a huge company like Goodyear? I mean, it's truly one of the most recognized brands in the world. How did you end up there? Did you have someone helping you early on? Sometimes it takes someone to really open a door for you. Well, uh, in in my case, I mean, like life is in general, I believe it's it's a lot of uh, coincidence. So when I finished my PhD, I needed a job. So uh, I was writing uh, resumes and mailing them to different companies. And sometimes I got an interview, etc. At the end, I had three offers. And uh, I thought the one for Goodyear was the best one, even though I never thought that it would be good to stay in the tire industry for all my life. But I said, this will be good for a few years. And Stable business. There we go. I spent 30 years at, at Goodyear, which I had Tremendous. I had never, never planned. But on the other hand, when you are working in a big company, you have so many possibilities. It never becomes boring. I had actually, in 30 years, I had 17 uh, different jobs, so that is in average less than two years per per job. That is a lot. Research and development, and uh, leading businesses, and also uh, I worked in six different countries. So there is a lot of change. I never was bored at Goodyear for sure. You're listening to the Up to Podcast. We'll be right back. During the first season of the Up to Podcast, I had several companies and entrepreneurs approach me about potential partnerships, but I'm really selective before choosing to do something like that. One choice we did make happily is to partner with Vivid Front, a full service digital marketing and website design agency based in Cleveland that works with both local and national brands. They've built their entire client base on referrals and they've won a lot of awards, including the 2019 Inc. Magazine Top 5,000 Fastest Growing Companies, North Coast's Top Places to Work, and several others. They're known for their talent, They're known for their creativity. They're known for their culture. A firm I liked before we agreed to partner together for the show. Check out vividfront.com or you can email me and I'll introduce you to their dynamic leader, Andrew Spott. Hello, my name is Adam Kaufman and I'm thankful you're joining us today on the Up To podcast. I want to tell you about a group that I'm grateful for and that is Town Hall. Cleveland's most popular restaurant and one that I can say is the only place my wife tells me she can eat every meal, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Town Hall was the first all non-GMO restaurant in the U.S. a few years ago, and they're now expanding into Columbus, Ohio soon. I'm also very selective about who we choose to partner with for this podcast, and it was with open arms that I embraced the idea of partnering with Bobby George and Town Hall. To learn more about what they're up to, you can visit townhallohiocity.com. Welcome back. 
You're listening to the Up To Podcast with Adam Kaufman. Our guest today is Dr. Jean-Claude Keen. You've lived all over the place in different types of countries too, not just in Western Europe, for instance, uh, Asia, South America, Europe, of course, here in North America and the U.S. Where, where are you when you feel most alive, do you think? Well, I look at it, every country has advantages and disadvantages. And I had a friend of mine at Goodyear who had also lived in different places. He said it's it's very easy. If you want to be happy, you are looking at the good things in that country where you are and and you try to ignore what is not so good. If you do the other way around the contrary, then you're unhappy for sure. That's wise for all of us, no matter where we live. Yes, right, exactly. And I think in general, that's, I mean, a principle to follow. Great advice. I mean, you've lived in Brazil, correct? Right. Lived in... um, Peru. Peru. Thailand. Thailand over in Southeast Asia. Right. Uh, And then, of course, the U.S., as you said, and Belgium and Luxembourg, uh, so... Mm. Those are the six countries. And at the height of your work, how many people reported up to you, you know, indirectly through your direct reports? I mean, the last job that I had that was to be the president of Europe, Middle East, and Africa. So that was a little over 20,000 people. 20,000. Yeah. My Lord. And how many tires your final year as president, do you remember, did you sell? I think it was, if I remember well, 60 million tires. I'm trying to give folks just a picture of the scale. 20,000 people, 60 million tires, is that what you said? Right. So 60 million widgets per year. Yes. And if any one of those, and I'm sure once in a while one of them malfunctioned or wasn't uh, constructed properly, it could be a real problem for the end user. Yes, it can. And I think that is the critical aspect of something i mean the tire industry is part of the automotive industry and there are accidents and sometimes they are fatal so there's a Mm. huge responsibility uh, for the quality of the product and and like any human enterprise sometimes things go wrong and that creates i mean a huge stress on the organization because people don't do it on purpose something went wrong and you can't put Lives at risk. Yeah, and in the history books are filled with examples of corporate leaders who responded well or poorly to things that go wrong. A good example, I'm thinking about uh, Bill Weldon when he was CEO of Johnson & Johnson, and there was a Tylenol problem. Yes. And he pretty quickly took all the Tylenol off all the shelves, and that was great corporate responsibility but sometimes folks wait too long to do a recall. Right. Were there any big moments for you when you were president that you had to make any kind of decision like that? Well, I think there were obviously uh, one or the other uh, quality issue during my, my tenure. But luckily, I must say, I have never had a very, very big one mm. uh, because I think that can be a trauma. If you think, for instance, I mean, 20 years ago, what uh, Bridgestone Firestone had with the Ford Explorer, I mean, which was a gigantic problem. Uh, what was the problem there? I'm not sure I remember. Well, so, I mean, what you had is the the tread of the tire separated from the rest of the tire. Mm. And that made uh, the vehicle very, very difficult to control. And since an SUV has a high center of gravity, they uh, uh, roll over uh, quite easily. Mm. So there were a number of fatalities that were... Uh, relate I do to, remember that in the that. news. Was that more of an SUV vehicle problem or the actual tires? I think it was both. It was a bad combination. Mm. 
uh, and and that is like usually in when you have a disaster, it's Complex. a combination yeah. uh, of problems. Let's go back to your uh, ascension to president of Europe and the Middle East and Africa. Were there other leaders that you uh, leaned on as you were continuing to grow in your own skill set or maybe somebody who inspired you from afar, whether it was another business leader or someone from history? Do you have favorite leaders? Yes, uh, I think I had uh, favorite leaders, but not, I mean, not uh, leaders like, I don't know, Alexander the Great, etc. Nothing like that. I had always leaders, I mean, who were in a more modest function. Uh, and and that I admired because they were good leaders, calm leaders, uh, fair leaders, etc. The other thing that I believe is very important too is also to identify bad leaders. Uh, I think I sometimes it happened that uh, we had leaders that were just looking after their own good at the expense of the company, at mm-hmm. the expense of other people. And for me, it has always been a lesson. I don't want to do that. So I think we should have role models, but also we should make clear in our head what we do not want to become, sure. what we do not want to, to do. So you mentioned calmness as a good aspect of effective leadership. What would be some negative components of bad you know, leadership? Well, if you are... Uh, self-centered? Or? Self-centered, for sure. You you work for yourself. I mean, you, you, your own good rather than the company's good. Mm-hmm. And then also the way you treat your people. I mean, it's a very stressful job. You don't have a lot of time. I meet meetings are very short and you go from one topic to the other, etc. There is a, an easy temptation to be short with the people and to be impatient. And that makes people feel... Uh, not at ease, and, and that is never right. good when people are not at ease with you because then you do not get the most out of, out yeah, of their knowledge. Yeah, you don't inspire them, right, right. right. I've struggled with how to verbalize it, but a leader has to have some level of approachability. Yes. There needs to be certainly roles and delegation and authority, respect for the position of authority, but approachability because some of these corporations get so large and I feel like the leaders can get so out of touch with the yes. end user, the customer, let alone the, the frontline worker. And I'm thinking right now in, in current affairs, this, the former CEO of McDonald's, and I love McDonald's. One of our kids works at McDonald's. But right now they're reevaluating how he was maybe giving stock to subordinates who maybe he had extramarital affairs with, and you wonder how in a public corporation setting things like this can occur. But if you're not approachable, I feel like you can become this almost king-like, I can do no wrong. Right. But I just, I worry about the approachability or lack thereof of leaders. Yes. I think that's very important. And another aspect that goes together, I'm thinking about one of my experiences, uh, that is when I was the managing director of Goodyear Brazil, they had open offices, so including I was the managing director, including my office was just was maybe a little bit bigger, okay? Right. But it was open. and So that creates, I mean, people see you and you can see them. Right. And I, I and really think, and that is a huge positive. That's because the approachability can, that I'm talking it's about. It's the approachability because they walk over to you more easily and also you get a much better feel mm-hmm. uh, of how things are going in the organization because you could see the salespeople coming back. Uh, are they happy or are they unhappy? Right. And, 
the body language, the camaraderie between some people, etc. So um, I found that actually very good. It has disadvantages, of course. I mean, you 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 sit among a lot of other people, right? But the positives, I think, outweigh the negatives. I I agree with you, and I think that's what's going to bring us back into the workplace post COVID. Those intangibles of body language and the spirit of a group when a good sale gets closed. Yeah, I think we are social animals. I think there was even a a book written on that, The Social Animal. Mm -hmm. So we need to interact. And this is, of course, something that is temporary. I mean, it will go away. Nobody knows exactly when, hopefully soon. But uh, And then we go back to our normal way. We need physical contact. Absolutely. Uh, We need to see each other, touch each other. I mean, that is just the normal way humans are. Have you learned anything new about human nature? During COVID, any corporate observations or just in your day-to-day life of going to stores? I feel like I'm analyzing society, not that I'm qualified to do so. Have you had any new conclusions about human nature? Well, I think it's a bit uh, disappointing, I I must say, how we have reacted as a society. And that includes the population as well as our leaders. I don't think we, in the West at least, have uh, reacted well. Mm. And um, I have read other books about the previous pandemics, I mean, bigger ones, I mean, like uh, the Spanish flu, I mean, it was a bigger problem, and the plague uh, in the 1650s, and especially the first plague in the the Middle Ages uh, in 1347, which killed about half the population of Europe, can Mm. you just imagine? So that is also why, since I'm always an optimist, we have not reacted well, but this is maybe good that we have such a mild, an extremely mild pandemic with a low low, uh, mortality rate, Mm -hmm. that we can set up our systems, uh, prepare plans, and also get the buy-in from the population. Because just imagine if the plague had hit us now with a mortality rate of 50%, I mean, if we discuss for six months what to do, what not to do, and mm-hmm. as a society, we cannot agree on it. Well, a third of the population is dead. So we, we can't afford that uh, if it is a real pandemic. So let's just hope the lesson is learned. This is almost and like a once, trial run, even though we're, right. we're going to approach 200,000 deaths in the United States, unfortunately. But it could be 100 million, okay? Mm. If it was the, the plague, uh, it, it could be. So just imagine uh, what that would be. So I think that is good. I mean, humans are forgetful, but hopefully this time we will not forget too quickly at least. We will develop plans and also we will get the buy-in of everyone in society before so that we just have, let's not discuss anymore when the when the virus is there or the bacteria is there, let's agree on that before what we will do. Depending on, I mean, how bad the disease is, of course, you cannot have one standard plan. That That's clear. How can we improve on our learnings? If we didn't learn much from 1917, 1918 to now in human nature, how can we improve on our learnings and therefore behavior for next time? Should we change laws? Should we apply more priority to science? Like, how can we make sure that we do this better next time? Yeah. And it's a question I say without even, it's not even the politics. It doesn't matter who's in office. No, no. How do we we make this better next time? 
I think we need to have plans. At Goodyear, we had once a bad hurricane. I think it was Katrina, but I'm not totally sure. And several plants, polymer plants, were badly hit, and things didn't work so well because the phone was down, and then we couldn't contact the people, etc. It didn't go well. And then the chairman, CEO at that time, created a position which was a director for business continuity. So business continuity plans were developed. And also there were uh, what was called a tabletop exercise. So you simulate an exercise. Okay, okay. a hurricane right. hits a given plan or, I mean, there's a big fire at a big plan or there is a strike or, or whatever. So that is, I think, you need to have rehearsals like anything mm-hmm. in life. If you want to be good at it, you have to rehearse. And I think that is the same. Let's, I mean, maybe sit together once this is over. Test runs. Have people who are really very knowledgeable uh, bipartisan, etc., so that it is not a, a matter of who is in power at that moment, develop plans, and then we practice it. We practice it. We say there is a new virus. What are we going to do? So well, that's that we a good have. point. Like, the, I haven't thought about it like that. Like, we do the bank stress tests now after yes. the 2008 financial crisis. We didn't do that before. Presumably now to keep another financial crisis from occurring or at least to limit it. So we could do other kind of stress tests yes. in a health, global health sense. I remember right. being in elementary school, we had to practice if a nuclear attack occurred. We had to learn yes. how to go into the hallways and bend down and cover right. our heads and so forth. That's a good point. We should find ways because, as you said, humans are forgetful. And so one generation later, this may not be a priority again. Right. Because they will believe, like we believe, that this would never happen. I mean, we have science, we have medicine, it has Mm -hmm. made so much progress. Uh, I mean, like the Spanish flu uh, or like the plague, it could never happen to us. Well, we see now it has. uh, It's not as bad, but just because the virus is not as bad, it's not our own merit. And Bill Gates was talking about this like more than a decade ago. And he was back then, I think, the world's most affluent individual. He still wasn't getting much attention on this topic. You mentioned you you like reading a lot right now. Is there anything you're reading that you would encourage me to look at or any thinkers that you've been listening to more that's really captivated your attention? Well, I'm reading now a book on on Truman's life. I mean, the four months president just Truman. when he President Truman when he became president in April, mid April, uh, 1945, until I believe the surrender of of Japan. Uh, so, which were probably the most important four months in wow. in the 20th century, yeah. okay, because... That's some rapid crisis management. Right, and, and also I think a lot of decisions were made that influence us until now. I mean, for 75 years, I mean, the world has been shaped in a given way, so we had to make many decisions and not just decisions that were for the U.S. I mean, it was for the global entire implications. global implications, etc. And I think we are very fortunate as, I mean, Americans, but also as citizens of the world. Many decisions were right. And I think we can be very fortunate because he had no experience. Mm-hmm. He was not trained mm-hmm. at all by Roosevelt. He'd, Roosevelt didn't tell him anyone, anything. Uh, so we had really to learn everything. Uh, and and it was a huge challenge, and I think for such a huge challenge, he mastered it. What a leader. Yes. Well, the mentoring that you do, I feel like those uh, mentees, now a CTO, are very fortunate to have you. Do you ever talk to them about staying with one company? It's amazing you stayed with one company your whole career. That's pretty rare today. Do you think that's a good idea to stay inside one business as you reflect back? I think it has 
advantages and disadvantages like anything. I, I think uh, every industry has, um, there's a lot, of, a lot of knowledge that has been accumulated and that you need for a company. Right. Technology changes so fast now, though, it's hard to keep up, I bet, inside these big corporations. The innovation, and I know you were involved in innovation, is so important for a company to survive through generations. Yes, but it's also just to know how things work. I think that's the advantage when you grow up in a company. You do the, the job, some of the jobs at least, at the bottom of the, the hierarchy, so you know how it works. And I saw that with other people who came in at a higher level. They brought, of course, a lot of new ideas, which were excellent. So, I mean, I mean that was a great idea to bring people from the outside. But on the other hand, even basic things, I was surprised they didn't know about the tire industry mm. and they made decisions without really always understanding. That's a good point. Yeah, the institutional history that can right. only come from being inside from the from the bottom up. My favorite uh, burger place, I must be hungry, I mentioned McDonald's and now this, but uh, In-N-Out Burger out west. Uh, no one can become a general manager of the In-N-Out Burger restaurant unless they started at the ground level. Yes. And, and that has served them very well. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of what you're talking about. Yeah. I have also read, I don't know which families anymore, but when they were very wealthy families, they had an empire. They forced their children to start at the bottom mm-hmm. of the hierarchy. And, and the second thing is they made sure that people didn't treat them preferentially. Okay, they just had to do the same job, the same dirty job if it was right. dirty than any anyone else and I think that is extremely helpful that you know how things uh, happen at the bottom of the, the hierarchy uh, yeah what are you most excited about right now as you look ahead well I think it's a crisis it's a smaller crisis than the black plague but I read even though I have maybe a little trouble to totally believe it but that the, the black plague in Europe in 1347 was critical in, in generating the Renaissance in Europe. So mm. the Renaissance is probably the most important period in, in, in Western history. I, I was mentioning Truman for the 20th century, but if you look at Western civilization, I mean, it was really shaped in a decisive way uh, during those 100 or 150 years. So... This is a smaller crisis, obviously, but nevertheless, I I hope that uh, there will be a lot of new things, as they say. I mean, a crisis is an accelerator. I love that. The creativity and entrepreneurship and in the arts, the Renaissance, of course, wasn't just about business at all. I love that. When does that start? Will you come back and let us know when we're officially in the (laughs) the new Renaissance? Because I'm ready for that. Yeah, that you can only say uh, many, many years and decades uh, later. Later. What would you say, I just asked about the future, what would you say going backwards a little bit, if you could talk to the younger Jean-Claude, maybe you're 21 years old, what advice would you give your younger self? It's the kind of question I generally avoid because I'm not a person who wants to get into regrets because I'm a forward-looking person, not a backward looking person. Uh, well, you're allowed to have that as your answer. You don't have to talk to your younger self. No, no, but I think what is important nevertheless, I think it is that you do something that you like. I think you cannot be successful in life if you force yourself to become uh, something that, that you are not really gifted for, that you don't want. I have always worked, I mean, if I like the job, I will do a good job. And right. If I do a good job, I will be promoted, etc. People will recognize it. So my 
most important advice to younger people would be do what you like. Do what you uh, love doing. What you love doing, then you will be good at it and you, you will be happy. And I, I agree with that, Jean-Claude. I don't read as many books as you do, but I did read a fair number of business books. And Marcus Buckingham is my favorite thinker in this category. And he was an executive at Gallup. So Gallup, the polling company, known for political polling, but they do polling in every industry. Yes. And his biggest finding was, and he calls it strengths, but it's a different definition. A strength in Marcus Buckingham's thinking is something that makes you feel good while you're doing it. Yes. Because there are some things that we can be good at or competent at doing, but if we don't feel that rumble in our belly while we're doing right. it, it's not really something we enjoy. Right. So that's what you're talking about is right. identifying what makes us really feel good on the inside when we do it. Right. Because finally, we spend a lot of time at work, okay, most of us. So most of our time. If, right. And if Sadly, you don't, until the next renaissance starts. And if you don't feel uh, uh, well, it's life is tough. Life is tough. Mm -hmm. So I think you should have also fun in life. I think that is what I enjoyed. And I, that's probably people are asking me what I miss most since I'm retired. And I would say it's probably the camaraderie mm. because at the end, I mean, even though they are your colleagues, it's such why it's not always perfect, but nevertheless, there is a very big Absolutely. camaraderie in, in every team that I have been part of or that I have led. And, and that is great. And I think that is really what human nature mm -hmm. is about. I think from, I don't know, 10,000 years ago or maybe 50,000 years ago, I mean, we were hunting together, etc. We were traveling together. We need to be so connected. It, it's, it's deep, deep, deep in our, in our roots. Uh, well, so. I, I love the camaraderie of this show and I love the friendship that you and I have built. So I'm grateful that you have given us some of your valuable time today, Jean-Claude. I'm really glad you were with us today. Well, thank you, Adam, for inviting me, and uh, I'm very happy. I, I agree with you. We have developed a friendship, and I really appreciate that. that, that those are the things that you cannot uh, replace in life. Mm. Uh, so thank you, Adam, for your friendship. Amen to that. Jean-Claude, that was great. We're yeah. done. Oh, thank you. Pretty painless, huh? Yeah, I mean, it was better than a dentist. For oh, great. <laughs> better than a dentist. Are we still taping? Hey, Dave, I just listened to the episode with Jean-Claude. It's a couple days later. I'm actually in North Carolina now, but I wanted to call because I just thought there were some really uh, meaningful takeaways that I wanted to highlight. The first one, he said early on, it is possible to improve our leadership skills but the key to doing so is to being open to honest feedback. That's hard to do. And Adam, around that same part of the conversation, Jean-Claude also mentioned being able to identify bad leaders as well as good ones so that you can take the positives and, and kind of shed off some of those negative things for yourself as a leader. Yeah, and try not to do whatever behaviors you see them doing. Yeah, exactly. Number two, being better at what you do is possible but we must always practice. He said, practice, practice, practice. Even the top athletes continue to practice. Number three, Jean-Claude said, diversity of thought and diversity of experiences really enhance an organization, both the culture and the potential success of the organization. Number four, do what you love doing. You know, we hear this a lot from successful people, so there must be some truth to it. Don't force yourself to work in an environment that doesn't light you up. We should really try to identify and then follow our passions. Number five, 
Jean-Claude talked about looking forward to a new level of creativity post-pandemic. Creativity both among entrepreneurs and also in the arts, similar to the Renaissance period a couple of centuries ago. I hadn't thought about that and I love that he said that. Those are my takeaways. And now it's time for this week's listener mailbag. Since Adam's out of town, I'm going to go ahead and read this one on my own. Just listen to the latest podcast, Adam. Waverly is a cool dude, was extremely interesting and enjoyable to listen to. Thought the conversations were great and informative, especially for everything that's going on in the world right now. It seems like he's had a crazy life and it was just cool to hear how he's turned it around and been successful. Very inspiring. And that was from John Keebler uh, from Dallas, Texas, recent Texas A&M grad. Go Aggies, gig them. And thanks to all of you for listening to another episode and we will see you next time. Up To is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. A special thanks to our producer and audio engineer, Dave Douglas. I'm your host, Adam Kaufman, and thank you so much for listening to the Up To podcast.